When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are we supposed to get married? I'm gonna just swipe left. I just want somebody to share my life. You don't need to know why something is stuck to get it unstuck. Start with getting a micro yes. You can keep waiting for the fairy tale, or you can get on board with the new rules of relationships. If you read my advice in the LA Times, then you know this ain't your mama's love advice. This is Dates and Mates with Damona Hoffman. Hello, lovers. Welcome to another captivating episode of Dates and Mates. New love is exciting, and it's not surprising to find yourself a little love drunk at times. But similar to a situation where you had a martini too many, we don't tend to think straight in these moments where we are blinded by love. So how do you prepare yourself for those moments of intense attraction? You plan ahead of time. Without a plan, you're likely to find yourself stuck in one of the five dating loops. Could be the mindset loop or the sourcing loop, whatever may be holding you back. It's time to overcome procrastination, acknowledge anxiety as your superpower, and learn to let go of the outcome. And that's why I have licensed psychotherapist Britt Frank joining me today. She'll be talking about her new book, The Science of Stuck. Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. But first, we have our headline of the week, How Reproductive Rights Impact Dating. New OkCupid data is hot off the presses. Then later in, Dear Demona will tackle this question. How much is too much when it comes to sharing details about your profession in your dating profile? The dating dish is a dish best served hot, so let's bring it. These dating dish... The OkCupid blog says supporting women's rights is a top priority for female daters. But I'm going to tell you why it should be a top priority for male daters and daters of all genders, too. So the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade was last week. It originally passed on January 22nd of 1973. So over at OkCupid, we were like, hmm, let's look at how reproductive rights have changed the dating landscape, and how the reversal of Roe v. Wade last year may impact it in the future. Let's break down the numbers first. According to OkCupid stats, about 87% of women on OkCupid are pro-choice. I'm going to repeat that. 87% of women on OkCupid are pro-choice. Now, about half of women on OkCupid say that a difference in opinion about abortion would make them rethink dating someone. Apparently, differing views on abortion are more polarizing than different views on politics and also on the death penalty. So this is mm, a really important issue. And 69% of women, <laughs> 69, feel that they should have legal decision-making power in abortion decisions. The majority of women said that they would not move to a state where abortion was illegal and four in 10 women would move out of their state if abortion became illegal in their state. All right, so those are the numbers, but let me tell you what I see in this. And I've, I've said on the show before that 
I feel for dating apps to be successful, the safety and security and well-being of women has to be front-loaded. And this is why a lot of apps have moved to a mutual match system where a woman has to consent, has to agree, has to match with someone to begin a conversation. Because prior to that, women were just getting inundated with random messages, with dick pics, with things that made us feel unsafe on dating apps. So major cultural correction, great. But I don't really see that in the data. I see that we are in what is being referred to as a sex recession. And by the way, these numbers came out before the reversal of Roe v. Wade. So I'm going to talk about how the reversal is going to have an impact on these numbers. But here's facts. Singles are having less sex than ever before. People in their early 20s are two and a half times as likely to be abstinent as Gen Xers were at that age. And 15% report having no sex since they reached adulthood. So to add more data points to the pot, Google Trends data reveals that celibacy is trending upwards in the U.S. So there's been an over 80% increase in searches for the word celibacy, which puts it at an all-time high. So that tells me, I, I, I look at the data and then I try to figure out, like, what are people doing? What are the behaviors that are being impacted by these legal decisions, by the way people live their lives, and by the rights that they have available to them? And I think all signs point to people are trying to figure this out. <laughs> and I would bet money that this sex recession will widen because the best thing to happen to dating was women having choice, having freedom. I've also said this on the show before that, you know, you look at a generation or two ago, women had not that much choice. Your dating pool was not that big. Even if you could freely meet and marry or not marry, but probably marry because that was the, that was of the time. But if you could meet and marry whoever you wanted, you still were limited to your community. Now we're going to see the impacts of women who don't feel they have choice behaving differently on dating apps and in dating culture in general. So here's the bottom line. This impacts everyone, and this impacts how we interact with each other, what things we'll say yes to, who we allow into our lives, and it will most definitely widen the sex recession. So my advice is for everyone to enter dating with compassion for others and their situations, to also be dating from a point of view of the stakes are as high as they are. <laughs> they are high. And particularly if you live in a state where abortion is illegal, the stakes are very high for you. So now is the perfect time to think about dating mindfully and dating with clarity. Eight in 10 Gen Z and millennial women consider themselves feminist, according to OkCupid stats. I'm curious about the men. I want everyone to say they're a feminist because being a feminist just means that you believe that we are equal, that women are equal 
And I think we need to reclaim this title and really define what it means because everyone should want to be equal. And in partnership, to me, that is the most important thing for you to find a partner who supports you, who sees eye to eye with you, and who also shares your values and beliefs, what you believe about the world. All right, I know things got a little little hot and bothered in that last segment, but I encourage you to stick around. If you are feeling stuck in your dating life, no matter what your age, no matter what your gender, my guest, Britt Frank, is going to drop some knowledge truth bombs to help you out and get you unstuck. Stick around. Welcome back, lovers. Britt Frank is a therapist, teacher, speaker, and trauma specialist. She speaks and writes about the mental health myths that keep us stuck and stressed. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. The myths? Mm-hmm. Well, she has a new book. It's called The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. And it is available now. And she is available to give you some advice today on how to get unstuck in your dating life. Please help me give big smooches to Britt Frank. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Oh, thank you for being here. Girl, you are, first of all, you know things. Second of all, you are so dynamic. I just was like going down this Instagram rabbit hole with all of your advice and all the wisdom and gems that you drop. And it's like you took all this stuff and you gave us it this in this little package called a book. <laughs> so thank you. Oh, yeah. My club happy to take my sordid personal history and condense it into a do this, don't do this. Here's what works. Here's what doesn't work. Yeah. Just tell me. Just tell me what to do, Britt, please. But yeah, I mean, The Science of Stuck, it's such a fantastic book It's and it's so accessible. But I think the reason I'm... I, I mean, wh- what do I know? But this is my my assessment. I think the reason that you connect with so many people around the world is because you really bring it down to a very practical level of understanding. Like you've said, you know, we're brain owners, but we don't have the manual. So what inspired you to give us this manual for the science of stuck? It is absolute insanity to me that there's amazing information that is fully unaccessible. And even if you can access it, it makes absolutely no sense. Like in all the grad school and trainings and certifications, I'd be like, what? I don't understand. Can you, can somebody please explain this to me in human language? There are no special prizes for using big words and complicated concepts. And so I wrote the book that I wish I had had when I first attempted adulthood because it didn't work. And it's sort of like driving a car. If you don't have driving I don't need to be an auto mechanic. I don't need to know everything. I just want to know enough that I could drive around relatively safely. But that book didn't exist. All the self-helpy books are either really, and there's nothing wrong. All the books are useful and there's a place for everything. But with the neuroscience, they were either really simple or way too complicated. So, you know, I took a three-year training and turned it into a cartoon because that makes more (laughs) sense to me than having this long explanation of these multisyllabic brain words. It's like brain gas pedal, brain brake pedal, push this, you're going to feel that, push this, you're going to do that. And as a drug addict, sex addict relationship mess of a human being, I found it helpful later on to know this stuff. So anyone who can not have to do what I did to learn what I know, yay, I'm happy to shorten their process. Oh, but I want to know what you did, girl. (laughs) (laughs) 
Why you call yourself a hot mess? <laughs> well, I don't think anyone needs a guidebook to to know that like smoking meth is probably not going to be conducive to a healthy, happy, harmonious, functional relationship. Nevertheless, I did it and plenty of other people did lots of stuff too. It's like we know logically don't do this, but we also know that we're doing all of these things that are totally contrary to it being healthy and happy, but we don't know why. And everyone thinks it's because I suck. It's because I'm lazy. It's because I'm unmotivated. It's because I have a broken picker. And it's like, no, there's a reason that you date the same person over and over. There's a reason why this seems to be difficult. And it's the process of healing injuries isn't easy, but the information shouldn't be impossible to grasp. Yeah. And I mean, I know you, you went and became a therapist and you got all of the, the tools to be able to heal. For the people who are listening, who are like, just like you said, okay, I get it. I get it. I feel stuck right now. I, whatever it's, you know, stuck in substance abuse, stuck in this relationship, stuck in even singlehood. A lot of our listeners are looking for partnership, but they're like, I don't know the next step. Or they're constantly giving themselves reasons not to take this next step if they know that it, they know what it is, but they just don't want to do it. I get that. I get that totally. It's like, I don't want to do that. That's scary. That's hard. But I think people have these, and I hear it every day, and I know you do too. Here's my story about why I date the same person. Here's my story about why I'm single. Here's my story about why this isn't working. And those stories are almost always filled with shame. And those stories are almost never accurate. So it's like, if we're starting with the wrong assumption, everything we do isn't going to work. So let's just start with the assumption that you are not broken, that you are not defective, that even if you think there's something total, I used to think that I got sent out of the human factory missing all of the operating software and a whole bunch of information. But like, assume there's a reason that this is hard or that this is not working. And the beautiful thing is you don't need to know why something is stuck to get it unstuck. Let's just start with getting a micro yes. We all want to take these big Instagrammable steps that we can show everybody. But everything that I've ever been able to heal or change or whatever came from a series of micro yeses forward. There was no big leaps, none ever. Mm. So let's talk about some of those micro yeses in dating. <laughs> it's funny because I, I just did an Instagram post not too long ago on uh, adopting an attitude of yes when you're dating because we know the definition of insanity, right? <laughs> it's doing the same thing the same way and expecting different results. So if we want to do something differently, we have to say yes to different things. So what might some of those in dating, and I know you have a whole chapter on dating in your book, what are some of those, those sort of speed bumps or decision points or potential yeses that are getting uh, sped over along the way? One of them is saying yes to creating a plan. Like we do almost every single thing in our adult life with a contract, with a blueprint, with some sort of schematic, with some sort of idea of what we're going to do before we do it. Yet we all enter it. Well, I'll speak for myself. I jumped into the dating pool knowing I want to be loved. I want to feel these things, but having absolutely no concept. And a lot of the shenanigans of the dating world can be largely reduced by coming up with a plan. What does a plan look like? Say yes to making a 
plan. What are my red lights that are the hard non-negotiables? What are the yellow lights? Things I should keep an eye on that aren't a hard no, but are sort of like a, I don't know about that. And then the green lights, but no one does that because we're not taught. Sit down, draw a traffic light on a piece of paper like you're in third grade and put those qualities down. And as you're dating people, match up what you're seeing to what you said when your brain was clear. We're also not taught that dating makes our brain go into spring break mode and our brain goes fully drunk and high. And it's really hard to think and to see clearly and to make logical decisions. That's why you plan on the front end. So when your brain is drunk, you have something to go off of. (laughs) I love your approach, Britt. And (laughs) I agree with you. Like, this is why I have my clients literally sit down and write a dating plan because, look, I love that you said it. I didn't say it. You said it. (laughs) It's the one area of our lives, even though it's super important, it affects everything else in our lives, who we choose to partner with and who we give our time to. And yet that's the thing that we're going to leave to chance and be like, okay, I'm just going to jump in the deep end here and, you know, just see what happens. (laughs) So I like having a plan. I like what you just said. And the other thing about what you just said that I think is really important for folks to grasp is that you also, (laughs) I, I like how you make the brain science like very tangible. So you said it's like our brains are drunk, but that's really explaining something that's happening like chemically up here, right? Yes, exactly. And I mean, we can, if we want to go super like technical, tactical, some people like that, like the logical part of your brain is the neocortex. And that's the part of your brain you need in order to assess a relationship and make good decisions and ask, this person's great, but are they compatible for me? If I'm a night person, it's probably not going to work for me to date a morning person. And it's not because they're not a fabulous person, but there are some fundamental compatibility things that are really problematic that get in the way of, I mean, you can work around almost anything, but if you don't know that that part of your brain, that logical thinking, rational part is offline. And again, here comes the metaphor. It's like your computer. If you don't have access to Wi-Fi, it's not because the computer is broken. It's because you need access to Wi-Fi to get online. And when we date someone new, the Wi-Fi goes away and a flood of hormones come in. In fact, like I used to think, oh, this person makes me feel butterflies. Therefore, I must this must be good. It's like, no, butterflies is your nervous system stress response going, danger, danger, this person might not be totally right for you. But I didn't know that. I thought that was a hard yes. And so we also, the whole mistaking intensity for intimacy. So I'm really big on don't go on dates longer than two hours. And everyone hates this when I say this. I'm like, you don't have to listen to me. Do it your way and we can talk later. But like your brain is not designed to handle those marathon dates. They feel good. I've done them. They're awesome. But they're not sustainable and it makes the logical part of your brain stop working. And we need that part in order to make decisions. You're very generous. I say one hour. I give my clients (laughs) one hour and they're like, what? What can you find out in what one hour? If you don't know after an hour that all you need to know is that you want to see them again and let that, like you said, let that uh, that connection unfold. And then you you can start to use different parts of your brain. But if you're just flooded with neurochemicals, you're you're drunk. Girl, you drunk. (laughs) And being drunk feels really awesome. And so I get the appeal of I'm on my 58th minute of my hour long date, but I don't want to stop because it feels so good. But again, we know this with almost any chemical or substance that we ingest that 
if you do too much of it, it's going to become either an addiction or it's going to make your stomach hurt or it's going to give you a hangover. And relationships can't be built on intense marathon, you know, times with each other because that's not how intimacy is built. Intimacy is built with consistency that is sustainable over time, not these giant bursts of intensity that lead to hangover and burnout. Girl, preach, preach. That is right on. Exactly. You know, there was something else that you said, Britt, that um, really struck a chord with me. You were talking about, you know, when you have those butterfly feelings, that's actually that's actually a warning sign. And you talk in your book, The Science of Stuck, about anxiety and that anxiety can be a superpower. So as someone who has admittedly been working my whole life to keep my anxiety at bay. How can I turn this into a superpower? Your superpower. No one likes me when I say that. And I, my disclaimer is I've had anxiety my whole life. I get it. I'm in therapy. I take medication. I am very, very compassionate to how awful and how debilitating and how sometimes anxiety can even be life-threatening. So I'm not minimizing how awful it is. Nevertheless, Anxiety is there to keep us alive. Anxiety is there to warn us if something is unsafe. If you don't have access, now granted too much anxiety where everything feels dangerous and everything feels like a threat, like we need to work with that. But anxiety in itself is just uh, going back to the car metaphor, like your check engine light is annoying. I don't like it when my light comes on, but the light's not the problem. The light is saying you have a different problem. Anxiety feels awful, but it is not the problem. It's a signal pointing towards the problem. And I have people coming to me all the time. I have an anxiety disorder. I'm like, no, you have a lot of anxiety and you feel terrible, but let's figure out what your anxiety is trying to tell you. Because anxiety is either pointing to a problem or it's preventing you from something, or it's helping you feel bonded to other people. Like when things are anxiety inducing, we're quicker to bond and socialize. That's a thing. So if we understand that anxiety has a role to play and it's a messenger and it's not attack, this is my biggest thing is anxiety doesn't attack. It feels like an attack because it feels awful. It feels like we're going to die and it feels like it's coming out of nowhere, but anxiety is there to help. It's like a really unpleasant friend that's saying, hey, something's up over there. Maybe you should look over there. Oh, that is so true. That's so. And, you know, I even think about just in the different phases of my life, how anxiety has shown up and also waned. And I got to admit, like, I'm not... (laughs) not tooting my own relationship horn here, but I've been married 15 years and I look at the period of my life since I met my husband and the period of my life before I met him. And since I met him, my anxiety has gone way down and my life makes a lot more sense. So just using that logic and applying that back, I think, you know, there, there were a lot of times when anxiety would come up when I didn't feel supported and I didn't feel seen and heard and I didn't feel comforted and loved. And I'm sure there are a lot of people here, you know, we we don't really control the, the I, I'm going to stick with these metaphors because <laughs> I love metaphors <laughs> and like I, I see a kindred spirit here. You know, we don't control the cards that were dealt, right? But we can, we can learn how to work with the hand we have. There you go for an impromptu metaphor. <laughs> I, I love that. I like the cards metaphor, the ca- cars and cards. And it's true. And I can look at my cards all day long. And the biggest thing I see where people get stuck is this. I hate my cards. 
I, you know, I have bad cards that I've been dealt. Therefore, I am bad. And of course, if you're telling yourself that you're bad, your hormones and all those stress chemicals like cortisol are going to spike. So now you're going to feel really edgy anyway, because our self-talk can create physical states. So now I feel restless and edgy and I feel really on edge. So I'm not going to make good dating decisions if I'm already setting myself up to be in defensive mode and fight and flight mode. And I love what you were saying about your husband. I have not been married as long as you. I've been married two and a half years. And when I started dating him and he's like a super healthy, it's weird. He's like normie. He eats when he's hungry and he sleeps when he's tired. He doesn't use drugs. It's so bizarre to me. And I was so, I wasn't anxious, but I was uncomfortable because it was so unfamiliar. And my therapist was like, I'm like, this is awful. I'm like, he's normal. I don't know how to do normal. This feels terrible. Like chaos feels familiar to me. Chaos feels like home. This normal thing, I don't get it. And my therapist was like, you're not feeling anxious. You're feeling uncomfortable because it's unfamiliar. But we call anxiety every uncomfortable feeling we have. And we need to separate. Is it anxious or is it fear? Is it anxiety or is it uncomfort? And it's important to know that there are lots of uncomfortable ways our body feels besides just anxious. I wasn't anxious about him being normal. I was uncomfortable because it was unfamiliar. So it took me a minute. It took me about a year of dating before I settled into, oh, wait, this is how... This is how this works. A healthy person. Wow. Imagine that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Healthy relationship does feel very different. And a lot of times when I'm coaching clients, they're like, I don't know. It feels like nothing's happening. And I'm like, <laughs> That's good. That's like great. it shouldn't we shouldn't we shouldn't have these peaks and valleys and highs and lows. And I realize I sort of had an addiction to the drama And so when I met him and I was like, where's the drama? And 15 years later, I'm like, there's no no drama? (laughs) It can feel sort of like, uh, it can feel unsettling, as you said. And I I find that you, you reference this in the book, and I find in my work as well, that we get, we've fed, been fed a steady diet of fairy tales too. And, you know, fairy tales and rom-coms and we think it's supposed to look like this. It's supposed to feel like this. And the, the reality, and I don't want to speak for your relationship. I don't know. I'd love to hear. But the reality is usually it's much more of a slow burn and it's, 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 it just feels different than it looks in the movies, and we have to reprogram some of these beliefs and thoughts and stories that have been told to us that we pass down, that we repeat and believe as fact. It is, I had the same experience. Like the pace of authentic love is always slow and steady because how do you build trust? It's consistency over time. So these intense peaks and valleys and all I, in the book, I have the, okay, like I love a good love story too. I'm not being a downer about this, but like Jack and Rose, like they knew each other for a day. So, and they were like 17 and Romeo and Juliet were like 13. So if, if you translate what's going on in these relations, Beauty and the Beast is about narcissistic and they abuse. Die. And they die at the end. <laughs> and they die. Exactly. The it's end. really easy to bookend a relationship with it, you know, that kind of intensity with, and they died. So they didn't have to deal with things like, you know, bad days and PMS and all the other things that would have happened and paying bills and raising kids and all that other stuff. But the myths that are fed to us 24 seven, they're just not reflective of reality. Like it is not real. Love is real. Even Instagram, right? I mean, not your Instagram, your Instagram is real, but yes, I mean the glossy 
pictures and the filters. Like, we've just come to accept that. And that's not reality. And what's very interesting for me as a dating coach, Britt, is I see how this is impacting our experience with online dating as well, because we see these Instagram photos and we're like, that's what, that's what, that's who I should be dating or that's what my dating photo should look like. But I, gosh, how do we reprogram that? (laughs) Fix it, Brett. (laughs) And I had it too, like going into the dating world and looking around and knowing my relationship, the one I'm in now, the one that gives me great joy and is very healthy now relatively as, you know, we're still humans, but it's like, it doesn't feel like it looks, therefore I'm, I'm doing it wrong. Like, wait a minute, the, the date got cut short after this, after two hours, it's wrong. I'm not feeling butterflies, it's wrong. He's not obsessing about me like, like Twilight, Edward and Bella, that's an abusive relationship. Like you don't want someone, infatuation is bad always bad. Like infatuation does not necessarily mean that they're an abuser or a narcissist, but infatuation is always a suboptimal, not ideal state because you can't be infatuated and logical and take care of yourself at the same time. But I think the best way, and I coach people with this, you know, in my practice, if you want to stop believing the lies, stop looking at them. Like unfollow, mute, unsubscribe, stop looking at it because your brain will believe what you train it to believe. So turn it off. Stop looking at that. You are speaking my language. (laughs) Completely, completely. So let's speak now to those folks who are listening who say, okay, I get it. And I still feel stuck in, let's call it singlehood. I feel stuck in this phase of my life. And... I want to do something about it, but I I know I know you have feelings about this word procrastination. <laughs> There's different kinds of procrastination, right? Yeah, I hate the word because it's it's so loaded with shame. Like procrastination, you're not doing what you should be doing, and because you suck, because you're lazy. Okay, great. So what does the word actually mean? So procrastination is a fear response. There's two types. Just like there's a brake pedal and a gas pedal in your body, you have the up kind of procrastination where you're running around feeling like you're getting everything done except the one thing you should be. Then there's the off procrastination where you're laying on the couch, binge watching hour nine of whatever. But those are two very different fear states, and both of them require different tools to get out of them. But neither of them, neither stuck on up or stuck on down, is going to get solved if you think that I just, it's just me. The problem is just me. Like I really, I know what I should be doing and I'm not. The problem is me. Nothing will break procrastination faster than saying out loud, my nervous system is trying to help me. I don't like what it's doing, but it is trying to help me. What are three micro yeses available to me right now? Not next year, not after I buy the leggings, not after I get the planner. What is available to me right now? Say yes to something because procrastination spell is broken the second you say yes to anything of any size in any direction. I love that. And I love that. I've heard you say you don't have to get from stuck to awesome. (laughs) You have to get from stuck to go. And th- I I feel like this this is really like this is the anthem here, you know, for for me and for my clients that are listening to the show and like interested in dating, and I have them like paint the picture of the relationship dream, but it's almost like okay that goes up on the wall and that's your vision. What's the next thing to do? Just do the next thing. 
And the next thing is sometimes really hard. And sometimes the next thing is, imp I didn't go from stuck in sex and drug and relationship addiction and codependency to now not doing that and married to somebody who eats when he's hungry and sleeps when he's tired. And sometimes doing the next step is too hard. And then we beat ourselves up. So how can you make the next step small enough that it's easy to do? Like not just doable, but easy to do. And then everyone says the same thing. How am I ever going to get anywhere if I'm doing these teeny tiny little micro steps? Well, you're going to get there a lot faster than if you keep thinking about doing the next big thing that never gets done. So if you don't like where you're at, stop looking at where you're going. Like you said, like put it on the vision board, put it on the wall, but then forget about where you're going and look where you are. And how can you find your way to a yes of any size? And everyone is quick to dismiss those, but that is in fact what makes all of the changes that we want happen. We just you know, live tweet the good stuff at the very end, not the finish, like not the beginning of the race. Thank you so much for joining me, Britt. Listen, y'all, Britt has one of the best damn psychologist Instagrams on the planet. So you better be following her. <laughs> Follow her at Britt Frank. That's B-R-I-T-T-F-R-A-N-K. And grab a copy of her new book, The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. The link will be in the show notes. In a moment, I'll be back to answer the following listener question. I'm proud of my profession, but still not sure I should list it in my dating profile. Do you have any suggestions? <laughs> Do I have any suggestions? <laughs> Stick around. Man, I love that Brit Frank interview. And I love helping you get unstuck in your dating life. So now we have the question of the week. Dear Demona. Help me. This one comes to us in an email from Bren. She says, I'm 60 years old and new to online dating after divorce. The biggest question for me is, as a medical professional, I am hesitant to put that I'm a doctor on profiles due to fear of predatory practices on dating sites. It's a tough issue because, of course, I'm proud of what I do and being a professional woman, but very hesitant to put it out there that I'm a doctor. I think my main concern is those targeting women who are professionals presumed to have money for financial schemes. I feel like if I do not say that I'm a doctor, that might weed out some of those looking to take advantage of a woman based on their perception that she has money. Am I being paranoid? What's your advice on being completely transparent on your profession in a dating profile? I find so many times the answers to our questions are in the questions. So if you ever feel like, am I being paranoid? Usually the answer is no. <laughs> paranoia, we, or I, let's not even, I'm going to put paranoia aside, Brent, because I don't even think it's paranoia. I think it's concern and vigilance. That is usually a sign and a signal from your body, similar to anxiety, as we've talked about before on the show. That's a signal from your body like, hmm, I'm not sure if this feels right. Now, it doesn't mean we take it at face value. It doesn't mean we lean into it and we're like, ah, let's let the paranoia take over our lives. But it's cause for pause. Oh, I kind of liked that. It's cause for pause. So you are right, Brent, to be concerned about dating safety. And I mean, I've done a million episodes on dating safety, so I won't, I won't, belabor the subject, but I will tell you that as a woman in her 60s who 
is a professional and, you know, takes care of her own business, you are in the highest risk category for online dating scams. They call them romance scams. Now, I just will also say, those of you who are like, see, that's why I don't do online dating. See, I told you there's all these scammers out here. Um, Instagram scams are actually more prevalent and took more money from people in 2022 than romance scams. Okay. And I know a bunch of y'all are on Instagram. So it's not, it's just that predators go to the places where people are. And in romance scams, people do try to prey on those they feel to be vulnerable, those they feel to have, have financial means. Also, I forgot to mention being divorced. That's another category that, that they target. So for today, I'm not going to go into the signs of romance scams because regardless of what you put in your profile, you're going to have to be on the lookout for that. But I do just want to focus in on your question because I hear this a lot from men and from women, from people in all different professions. How much is too much to put in the profile? How authentic and accurate should you be? And my feeling is always that you share information and dating on a need-to-know basis. And I'll actually go back to my own personal experience when I was online dating. I was working as a casting director. Some of you know this. I was a casting director in television. I worked for CBS. I worked for one of the big four networks. I was in, I was, I was at the foot of the king. <laughs> and so being in casting, it's the kind of role it's not, believe me, I was not doing anything as important as like saving lives and <laughs> doing the work that you're doing. But I was in a position where living and working in Hollywood, actors wanted to get into the door with my boss or, you know, my boss's boss or they wanted to be at that table. And it was hard for me to open up and say, oh, this is what I actually do, because I was really afraid that people were going to target me, that actors were going to say, oh, yes, I'll date Demona, and then I'll be able to get a part on CBS. You know, they don't call it the casting couch for nothing. And I was not interested in that. I was not interested in the casting couch. So I was interested in a relationship and therefore, I did not want to disclose specifically what I did. I wrote, kind of laugh at this now, but I was, I was young. Um, I said, for my profession, entertainment industry nonsense. One, it showed that I had a sense of humor about the ridiculousness of the job that we did. Casting, I cast TV movies for CBS. <laughs> I, I can't think of anything l like less important that it seemed so important to many people at the time. But it showed that I had a sense of humor about the job that I did. And if, if you know anything about Hollywood, you know there's a lot of egos in Hollywood and people take their work very seriously. But unlike you, Bren, we are not, we're not saving lives. We're not helping people in that way. So it showed I had a sense of humor about what I did. And it showed what industry I was in without giving away a flashing red sign saying, hey, actors, casting director here, come and approach me so you can get into my office and onto my casting couch. So I might take a page from that book for you 
into your dating profile. And I never want you all to feel like if you don't give someone the whole story that you're lying. That's not that's not true. You are giving people information on a need-to-know basis. So if you just say medical professional, as you said in your email to me, I don't know what you do. You, I mean, you're a nurse, you're a doctor, you are, you know, on the custodial staff. I don't know. You work somehow in medicine. It doesn't tell me enough where I'm going to see you as a target, which it may be real, Bren. And I know it is a a thing for male doctors. So I would only bet that it's a thing for female doctors that they get targeted because of their profession. And it also adds a little bit of curiosity where, remember, we're trying to create openings for people to send a message to us and to begin a conversation. And when they can say, oh, medical professional, what is it that you do? And you've already looked at your profile and you've already seen that everything seems to match up and you've begun a conversation with them and you've you've connected in the DMs in the chat, then on a need-to-know basis, you can share information about your profession as you'd like to. The thing I won't I won't encourage you to do is to be like really coy and cheeky about it. Because a lot of times people don't know when they're revealing this new information, like I don't know, should I, like, if I don't want to say it, do I say, I cannot tell you that. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Because then people are like, wait, what are you hiding? (laughs) But as it comes up in the conversation, you can give a little bit of information. And then as you're continuing the conversation, you can give a little bit more as you are open to it. But you're right to be vigilant. You are not paranoid. And you are very smart for sending your question into the show. I hope you enjoyed episode 448 of Dates and Mates as much as I enjoyed making it for you. I'd love to hear what your love dilemma is. The DMs are open at Damona Hoffman on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or give me a call, 424-246-6255. That's my 24-7 voicemail and text line. So, you know, you get home from a bad date, you're up swiping late, you want to get some help. I am the person that you should reach out to, 424-246-6255. We will be back again next Tuesday with another intriguing episode of Dates and Mates and the kickoff to Love Month. Until then, I wish you happy dating.